hear and heed the word of the Lord this morning coming from Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back any throne from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his, master, until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the, word, the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison, prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did... The Lord made it succeed. The grass withers and the flowers fade. So if you're not already there, turn to Genesis chapter 39. Let's pray together.
Holy Spirit, we pray that you come and be with us in this moment as we open up God's holy word. I pray that we would uh, see these words today as God's voice to us. And so give us uh, eyes to see, give us minds to understand, give us hearts to receive um, all that you have to show us from this passage of Scripture today. So steady our hearts to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So whenever you experience uh, suffering or hardship in your life, how, how do you tend to emerge from that? Do you come out of it on the other side more bitter? Maybe you're more angry or even more depressed than you were before you were in the suffering? And I think a lot of that, uh, how you kind of emerge from that, depends on what your mind is, uh, what your mind is on in the midst of the hard season. Do you fight against it when it comes? Do you complain about it while you're in it? Do you demand your rights and say, why this should not be happening to me? Or maybe you just hang on till it's over. You just say, I'm just going to endure until this is done. How would you react if your siblings tried to murder you? I know that's a silly question to ask. How would you react if they then decided not to murder you and then uh, sold you into slavery? What's your move when they do this? I read a story. We get the Voice of the Martyrs little magazine, which if you don't get it, it's free. You can get it every single week. But they tell stories of people in other countries, Christians in other countries, uh, enduring hardships for the sake of the gospel, the Voice of the Martyrs. Um, But in this week's um, issue, uh, they tell a story about a Tanzanian man named Timis Takris. And this dear brother and his wife, Deborah, both became Christians. One, Timistocris became a Christian out of a nominal Christian background. Uh, and then his wife became a Christian out of a Muslim Christian. A mu- a Muslim, there's no such thing as Muslim Christians. <laughs> out of a Muslim background. Um, through a simple invitation from a pastor in their city. And so pretty soon after becoming Christians... They both felt God leading them to start an all-night prayer event at their church. I have never had anybody approach me about that, so I'm open to it. So they began this all-night prayer ministry, and they prayed all night long with others, and they did this for every day for six months. So they would take turns, somebody would sleep and somebody would pray, and they would take turns doing this throughout the night for six months. And so surprisingly, because they lived in a majority Muslim area, This led to some threats and confrontations uh, by local Muslims. So much so that while praying one night with a friend of his, Timus Dacris was awoken by men hacking his arms and legs with machetes. And then soon finds out his praying friend was already dead. So Timus Takaris uh, survived. Somebody found him laying on a trail, kind of bleeding out, um, but got him to the hospital. And after several more attempts on his life while he was in hospital, uh, he was, he was uh, 
they tried to poison him while he was there, um, his attackers. And after 10 surgeries for multiple infections and months of re- rehabilitation, how does he emerge from this? What's his move? Let me just tell you. Timistocrates still would see his attackers in the city he lived, but he still chooses to show them grace. He says, They are forgiven. I know that they did something that they didn't know. Like Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then there's more. Very early in his hospitalizations, Timistocrates began to consider how he could thank God for preserving his life. So while receiving treatment, he thought, How can we thank God for all he has done for us? His answer was to make another significant commitment. So he and his wife, Deborah, decided to donate their land to the church as an offering of thanksgiving. Church members wept when they heard about the gift. But Timistocri's family members struggled to understand why a man with such severe injuries would give away his most valuable possessions. My father told me, I heard that you offered a plot to the pastor. I answered my father, I didn't give to the pastor, I gave my plot to the Lord. So put yourself in our brother and sister's shoes. How do you emerge from this? What's your move? Is it to give your plot of land, sell it and give it to the church? Give it to God in that way? Well, this morning in our text, in the midst of his own sufferings and hardships that are unimaginable to us, Joseph emerges as a man of faith and trustworthiness, both in his slavery and in his imprisonment. And the main reason for this is not in anything in Joseph on his own merit and character alone, but on the presence of God in his life, and Joseph's awareness of that reality. So the writer of Genesis here is basically shouting at us, look at what God is doing. Look at what God is doing. Because he doesn't want us to get stuck on Joseph's circumstances. He doesn't want us to get stuck on Joseph's good character, because he does have good character. But he doesn't want us to get stuck there and then miss what God is doing in Joseph's life and in the story of redemption as a whole. So six times the Lord is given credit for what is going on in Joseph's life in chapter, Genesis chapter 39. And four of those times it tells us the Lord was with Joseph. And I think some of you this morning, believers need to be reminded that the Lord is with you. Always. So maybe you're walking through a difficult situation at work. The Lord is with you in that. Maybe you're in a hard season of parenting. The Lord is with you. Maybe you're in a tough season of marriage and you can't see a direction forward. The Lord is with you. 
Or maybe you're experiencing an unexplainable hardship. Maybe you're in, maybe you're in counseling and you're having to deal with stuff from your childhood or, or just uh, having that counselor kind of dig up things in your own heart and you're, you're just confused and you don't know what's going on. The Lord is with you. Loneliness. The Lord is with you. Sickness. The Lord is with you. Persecution like our brother and sister in Tanzania. The Lord is with you. So let this passage of God's overwhelming presence be a balm of comfort to you today. So I want to look at this passage in three ways. Three ways the Lord was with Joseph and their implications for us. So the first way that he is with Joseph is in his work. The second way is in his temptation. And then the third way that God is with Joseph is in his injustice. So in his work, in his temptation, and in his injustice. So first, his work. This is the first evidence of God's presence with Joseph after he has been sold into slavery by Egypt. Last week we looked at Judah and Tamar. So we didn't, we didn't hear anything about Joseph last week, but here we find that, that Joseph is now in slavery. We know who he's in slavery, enslaved to, uh, and we know what's going on. And here we find out very quickly, God is with him. So look at verses 1 and 2. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So the author states that the reason Joseph became successful was because of the Lord's presence in his life. So because from a worldly perspective, it would be easy to think that Joseph was successful because he decided after seeing the terrible direction his life is going to kind of turn lemons into lemonade and just make the best out of this situation and work hard and do right and I will, I will be successful. I will dig myself out of this, this pit, so to speak. I will make myself a better man. That is not what's going on here. But we do love a good dramatic backstory, don't we? We, we like to know that, that there's some sort of suffering. And so if you just think about um, all of the episodes of America's Got Talent and um, American Idol and all of those kind of reality shows, if that person doesn't have a great backstory, we're just like, whatever. But man, if they have a solid backstory where there was an intense amount of suffering, they are moving on to the next round. <laughs> but it does seem that the more dramatic the backstory the more likely you are to, get, to, 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 to forget that it's God who is with you. Because we begin to think, we begin to trust in ourselves. So here's a man, Joseph, hated by his brothers, all of them, abandoned by his family, left for dead, uh, essentially, then eventually sold into slavery. His brothers make a profit off of him. And now he has risen to prominence. And so we would look at that as, bravo, 
good for you, Joseph. Way to, way to turn a bad situation into a good situation. You deserve this win in your life. But that's not it at all. The author of Genesis wants us to see very clearly the Lord was with Joseph. Because this isn't a text primarily about Joseph. It's not about his success in business. It's not even about his ability to avoid temptation. It's primarily about God's work in and God's work through Joseph. And we know this to be true because of verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So so the Lord's presence was recognized by not only Joseph, because I think Joseph understood at this point that God was with him, but it is recognized by Joseph's pagan master, someone who did not have anything invested in, in the God of Israel. Nothing. Didn't even really believe in the God of Israel. But he knew something was different about Joseph beyond his skill in running a household. Beyond his skill in being a good servant, in being a good slave. And also, on top of that, this acknowledgement by Potiphar, this, this pagan ruler of the Lord's presence, also affirms uh, God's promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-3, through 3, when he tells Abraham that all would be blessed who blessed his people. All would be blessed who blessed his people. And this is exactly what is happening in Potiphar's house. He's being blessed because he's blessing one of God's own. And so he recognizes this. He recognizes that the promises of God are infused in the lives of God's people. And because of that, others do take notice of this. So I wonder, Christian brother or sister here in this place right now, is this obvious of you in your workplace? Wherever that workplace is, hospital, Publix, you know, wherever it is, um, is this obvious of you in your workplace? Do people recognize a difference because of God's nearness to you? If not, they should. Even if they can't name it as Potiphar could about Joseph, your your primary goal, your, your chief end, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, your chief end is to is to is to bring God glory through your life. And so you need to figure out how to bring God the most glory in your vocation. Not trying to figure out how much money you can make. Not trying to figure out what kind of deals you can close or how you can move into a different position so you can have more power and prominence. So this, but it may come about. It may come about because you are making profits because you are such a good worker, but, but this may not come about in your ability to make profits uh, for your company. But it, it, it should come about at least in your work ethic. The way that you treat those you work with and work for. 
And this begins not with you trying harder to be nicer. This begins with your own pursuit of the presence of God in your own life. James chapter 4, verse 8 in the New Testament says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, if you think, well, Kevin, you have an easy job as a pastor. You have no idea how hard it is at my work. It is, it is brutal every day. I am not looking forward to Monday. The people I work with are impossible. My boss is terrible. Things are just not looking good. You have no idea how, how hard that is for me. And I would say... You're partly right. I, this, I haven't done this always my entire life. I've had hard jobs as well. But I would say you're right. I may not know your personal difficulties you face day in and day out, the intricacies of what you have to face and do every single day. But I would also follow up with, but you're not a slave. You are making money from the job that you're going to. The Lord is using that in, in, in a way. And so you're not in the worst case scenario. So I think let me just give you one simple application, one simple practice to help you gain an awareness of God's presence with you before going into your job each day. Because I think a lot of times within the church, we like to say, what kind, of, what kind of outreach opportunities are here? What can I do where I can go into a homeless shelter, which we do, or we can go into um, the care pregnancy centers, or we can go and, you know, we can do some sort of outreach that we kind of, we, we gather at somebody's house and then we go to a particular place, and, which is all well and good, and I think we should do those things. But I think we, we do those things um, to the point where we forget that God has called us to a vocation, or if you're not in a vocation yet, to a school, He has called us there with a purpose and a reason. It is not just something we get through in our day. For, for most of you, you are at your place of work more than you are at home. You're around the people that you work with more than you are your spouse and children because you have to be there 40 hours, 50 hours a week. And if you don't believe God has called you there, that those are just wasted hours, then you are missing the point of what your calling actually is as a believer. So here's just one very practical application you can, uh, you can do before walking into your job, and that's simply to pray a prayer of invocation. So we, we pray a prayer of invocation. Stephen prayed it for us this morning. Um, we pray a prayer of invocation every Sunday, and it is a prayer of invitation. So it is us as a people humbly inviting a holy God to come in and enter into our worship. Now, we know because of the scriptures that God is near. We know that he's with us here in, in this way. So those, that prayer is simply a prayer that really just reminds us that we are not here for ourselves, but that we are here for him. And so begin to do this before you, maybe it just takes place before you get out of your car and walk into your place of work. And I'll just give you a very simple, if you have the, if you have the, um, the little booklet, Every Moment Holy, there is, a, there is a good prayer in there. And if you don't have it, you should order it. 
Um, but there's a prayer in there called For One Who Is Employed. And I'll just give you a snippet. O Christ, let me work and serve in this position with mindfulness, creativity, and kindness, loving you well by loving all whom I encounter here. Jesus, be ever present as my mediate, as mediator between me and my employer, between me and my supervisors and co-workers, and in all my dealings and others in this work, reminding me that my treatment of them is the strongest evidence of my affection for you. I can send that to you if you want it later. Because just jumping back into Joseph's story, because, because the presence of the Lord in Joseph's life was not only for his success in his work, but it was a preparation for what was ahead of him. Just as it is for you. Because not only is God with Joseph in his work, he is also with him in his temptation as well. Look at verses 7 through 10. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater, this, greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. So I think this is interesting that the author starts this particular section with Joseph um, handsome in form and appearance. So he bears the burden of being uh, handsome in all particular ways. And I know from experience this is a hard burden to bear. But the advances that Potiphar's wife make toward him are not his fault. They're not his fault. And in every way, we see Joseph put off her advances. He's not seeking this out. He's not putting himself into this situation on purpose. He's simply doing the duties his master has asked him to do. The same duties that brought attention to God's presence in Joseph's life earlier. So the main point of this text is not how to avoid temptation, just so you know. But I would be amiss if I did not at least give some passing comments about, uh, about temptation here. And one in particular that I've seen, I've seen this trend uh, recently of having a work husband or a work wife. I don't know if you've, if you've heard of this. And it's become more popular recently. Um, almost a, as a joke. I see memes about it. And, and different social media. Just reels and things like that. Uh, about this particular aspect. But let me just say. This is not a joke. Because if this is something you're doing. You are playing a dangerous game. That will not end well. There is no such thing as innocent flirting with someone who is not your spouse. 
Because what you're doing there is you are, run, you are opening yourself up to temptation and not running away from it. You are kind of hanging it out here and kind of toying with this, with this idea because it makes you feel good. It makes you feel received and accepted or, or whatever it might be instead of running from it and avoiding it as we see Joseph doing. So instead of fleeing from temptation, what you're doing is you are cultivating it into a sin to commit. Typically, people that I hear that have cheated on their spouses, it doesn't happen in an instant. It's usually not just this overnight thing and like, whoa, I fell, I fell into bed with another woman. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. It is cultivated over time, over and over again. And it's eventually something, if you are doing that, you will fall into. So Joseph's avoidance of sin here points out a couple of things to us. First, is that faithfulness to God is developed over a time of faithful service to God. So just like we can cultivate temptation into sin, we also cultivate a faithfulness to God in our faithfulness to Him. We've already seen this demonstrated in Joseph's life back in chapter 37 when he was interacting with his brothers and he saw that they were doing something evil. Even though it might have been slightly annoying to his brothers, he still knew evil needs to have light shed on it. And so he tells his father about it. We've also seen it already in verses 1 through 6 where Joseph is essentially saying, God is with me, God is present with me, he has kept me alive up until this moment and I'm going to bring him glory in what I do. And it is noticed, he faithfully serves his God to point to God. And so when the moment of temptation arises in his life, His heart is ready to see something greater than the temptation. He is able to see past the temptation, which is the abiding presence of God. If you notice, that's that's exactly what Joseph says to Potiphar's wife. How can I do such a thing and sin against God? And sin against God. That's his most important relationship, even more important than his relationship to Potiphar. So if you don't already have a keen awareness of God's presence in your life, when temptation arises, it will crush you. You will struggle with it more deeply than you've ever struggled with anything in your entire life. Because in the moment of temptation, there is no time to fortify yourself with a commitment to God's plan. That's something you you should have already been doing before the temptation arose. Because you will be caught off guard and you, will, you, and you will not have eyes to see the danger you're in or the way out that God provides for you in that temptation. So the scripture explicitly tells us this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Because I know there's some in this room that say, also say, you have no idea with what I'm tempted with. It is so difficult for me to avoid this temptation. Hear God's word to you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be be able to endure it. So whatever temptation you face, 
whatever it is, sexual temptation, the temptation to cheat, the temptation um, to, to, to lie or to exaggerate the truth or whatever it might be, there is always a way of escape. And God will enable you to endure that moment of temptation. Do you know why? Because he's right there with you. He's with you. So that's the first point it makes. The second, the second thing this points to is Jesus' own example of how to deal with temptation and what that uh, you know, it points to in a greater ma- manner. Um, and, and that was read for us in Luke 14 by Matthew earlier. Because what we see here in Joseph's life is what is known in biblical theology as typology. Typology. So, so the life of Joseph foreshadows for us the life of Jesus Christ. Joseph is not just a a passing good example of good moral character. Joseph's life is foreshadowing the life of Jesus for us. So as God was with Joseph, God was also with Jesus. As Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife to take a shortcut to power, So Jesus was tempted by Satan to take a shortcut to power. And the way in which we see Jesus fight this temptation is through the very word of God, one, but also a closeness to his heavenly father. Because ultimately what the temptation of Joseph is pointing us to is is not the pursuit of good morality but rather the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ, who was like us in every way and faced temptation to sin like us and yet was without sin. And the reason was not to set a good example, but to save you from your own temptation and ultimately to save you from your own sin. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, speaking about Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Joseph's example of not falling to temptation is meant not to point us to how good Joseph did in the midst of that and giving us kind of three steps to avoid temptation. Joseph's not following temptation is ultimately pointing us to the redemptive reality of Jesus. And we know that to be true because Joseph's resistance to temptation, like Jesus' resistance, doesn't always bring immediate reward. Joseph didn't even get a trial on this. He was immediately brought to prison. And so Joseph suffered for for his spiritual victory, we could say, as, as did Jesus. And sometimes you will as well. Which leads us to see that God is also with Joseph in his injustice. Look at verses 19 through 23. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. 
his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, I think this is probably the most beautiful part of this passage because it reminds us of the theme of God's presence that runs like a thread from from the patriarchs all the way to Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what we see here is we, we don't have Joseph winning America's Got Talent here, or American Idol. He's not being rewarded for his faithfulness to Potter for all of those, all of those years. He's not being rewarded for his uh, avoidance of temptation in a way that we think he probably should be rewarded at this moment in his life. But it's a great reminder to us that God is with us in every single way, always. Because two of the six times that the author speaks of God's presence with Joseph are spoken in these final verses of Genesis chapter 39. And if you notice, the word prison was mentioned multiple, almost to the point where you're like, man, you could have used a different word there if you're, a, if you're an English major. But it, I, I think the author was saying he wanted us to be clear of where Joseph was. He was in the, he was in the, the prison where the, where the king's Uh, prisoners were placed. So maximum security prison, you could say. These were not people that the king liked. And this is where Joseph was. But twice, the author also tells us, God was with him. Because it would be very easy for us to look at Joseph and ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Why would God allow such a terrible injustice to take place to this wonderful man? And those are questions I think one asks when they can't see the future. Which if you think about it, you can never see the future. We are always in that place of looking ahead and wondering what the future holds. And so, and so we assume since we believe the future should look a certain way in our own minds and our imagination, because at this point, whatever is happening in the future is really only in our imagination, good or bad. So we assume since the future looks a certain way in our imagination, therefore, the present should look a certain way then. Because if these things are going to happen out in the future, and I think they will, then I need to be doing these things now in the present. And this is how it should all pan out. And when it doesn't, and I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm not saying don't plan. I'm not saying don't, you know, be wise about your finances and retirement and things like that. Don't hear me saying that, but I'm just saying nine times out of ten, 
your plans don't work out the way that you want them to. And, and when that doesn't happen, that is when the why questions start coming. Why am I not married? Why am I not getting pregnant? Why am I lonely? Why am I, why am I not getting a raise? Why am I not being appreciated at my job? Why are my classmates mean to me at school? Why aren't my kids walking with Jesus? In a way that, that you can begin to get to a better place of recognizing, even in the midst of those hard why questions, and I know we have them, but a, a better way to get to, to a place where you can recognize that God is with you in all of these hypothetical situations is first, when you find yourself in a place like this, is to ask, ask yourself this question. Is there a sin I need to confess here? Is there a sin I need to confess here? Am I in this situation because of something I did? Some sin I committed, some sin that I have not repented of. And this is something I don't think we like, we like to think about ourselves, um, and, we don't, and so we don't think about it enough as Christians, um, because we like to blame the other person instead of admitting our own sin in a situation. Think about the last time someone confronted you in your sin. Was your immediate response... Thank you so much. This was so wonderful that you came and presented this hard thing to me. I am so grateful for that. I mean, maybe some of you were. So maybe some of you are like that. But I'm sure the first reaction was to blame shift. Well, it's my wife's fault. Or it's your fault for confronting me. You're mean to me. Never to say like, yeah, that might be something that I'm really struggling with. And God is using you to point that out in my life. And I am thankful for that, even though it hurts, even though it's hard. Because sometimes, not always, but sometimes the situation that you are in is present to provoke repentance in us so that the, father, so that, so the fatherly discipline can be lifted from our life. The scriptures tell us that, 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 that God disciplines those he loves. He is a good father who disciplines those he loves. And so sometimes those hard situations might be there to remind you to repent. For Joseph, his own sin was not the cause of this situation, we know. Um, so the next question that you would ask after you've fully evaluated that, maybe asking people and getting wisdom on those particular things, the next question that you would ask if you were saying, you know what, I don't think there's a sin here that I've committed that would cause this, the next question is, is there a promise to look to here? Is there a promise that I need to see here? Which is a way in which you can begin to look for the Lord's presence in your life because that's the promise, remember? The promise is the Lord is with you. Even to the end of the age, He is with you. He never leaves you and He never forsakes you. And so when this is understood, we can be confident, like Joseph, like Jesus, in whatever sufferings we are entering or having to walk through, because we know that God is near. He hasn't left us, 
and he never will leave you, ever. So the message of this narrative comes through loud and clear. The, the Lord was with Joseph in times of prosperity, but also in times of adversity. And his adversity was bad. It was dark. It's the secret of contentment that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. When Paul says, I rejoiced greatly. And if you don't know anything about Paul, Paul also, also suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. I mean, more than any of us combined in this room, I probably would guess. But Paul says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's your familiar verse, especially if you played football in high school, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. A verse that, was, that is often taken out of context, just so you know. But that's the context for that verse. Because the secret of contentment, Paul is saying there, is Christ is with you always. That is the one unchanging factor in your life. You might be poor, one day, and you might be rich the next. There's a huge change that happens. But God remains the same. Every single time. And he is the one who gives you the strength to walk through your highs, prosperity, and your lows. The adversities and the sufferings. Because he never changes. In Romans 8, Paul again walks us through this great truth that remains to be true for us today in Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. He says, or he asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is with you. Even in your suffering, God is with you. And for that, we can give him praise because we know that even in those times of suffering, he is doing a greater work in us because as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary trouble. So Paul calls his sufferings light and momentary. For our light and momentary troubles, and the reason he can say this is is because uh, they are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Amen. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we are we are humbled by the reality that you are near, that you are with us, that you never leave us. Even in our sin, you do not leave us, and you do not forsake us. That even as Jesus promised, until the end of the age, he will be with us. So God, I pray that that, that, that reality of the nearness of Jesus would, uh, would uh, cause us to repent of sins that we need to repent of, but would also, also draw us closer to our Heavenly Father. God, you have made a way in which that um, is, is, um, is accomplished, and that is through your son Jesus, who was tempted in every way that we are tempted, and yet was without sin, so that he could be a perfect sacrifice on our behalf, so that we might have peace with you. And so I pray that that peace that we have, and understand that we have from you in Christ, would change everything about us that it would change the way that we approach our families, that it would change the way we approach our friends and neighbors and coworkers, um, the, the places that you take us day in and day out, that we would be changed and that you would be noticed and that people would, be, that people would come and give you glory because of that. And so give us the strength by your spirit to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.